Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, Harvest KL. My name is Ben Miller, and I'm the pastor at Oak Hill Fellowship Church in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. I am so excited to be joining you this way, uh, being able to uh, minister to you today via the wonders of the internet. And um, I am so grateful for you as a church. Uh, You may not know this, but we share a common pastor, former pastor in Nate Newell. And, uh, and even more than that, I was able to join you last February, uh, February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. Uh, and I got to spend a couple weeks there with a team from my church. And uh, you hold such a special place in our hearts. We, we love you. We are praying for you. And it is a joy and a privilege to be able to open God's word for you today. Uh, so you can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue on in your study in the book of Philippians. We had the joy at our church of uh, studying through the book of Philippians last year. And, and so um, I'm really looking forward to unfolding chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 for you today. Um, but I have to admit that the topic that I need to preach on is not an easy topic to address. The topic is humility. And I would suggest to you that the subject of humility is one of the most difficult, most impossible subjects to teach on. Because as soon as you bring up the topic of humility, people start to think that you think that you're an expert on humility. Or or maybe that somehow you're setting yourself up as an example of humility. And as soon as you do that, you cease to be viewed as humble. Um, one, one time I read a book about humility uh, written by a popular pastor. I thought it was a great book. This guy seemed to know what he was talking about. He seemed on the surface to embody the principles that he was sharing. Uh, and then several years later, he was forced to resign from his church simply because he had been using bullying tactics, proud, arrogant tactics as a pastor in his leadership. And, and so I'm like, well, do I, do I just throw out the book then? I mean, it seemed to have some good principles, but it reveals that there's a difference between knowing about something and embodying that thing, embracing that thing. And so it, it is really with much fear and trepidation that I speak to you on the topic of humility today. And I'm just holding on to the way that Paul described true preaching in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And I want you to know that I don't preach to you today, and the preachers that come to you week after week, we don't preach because we have this all figured out. We, We preach because Christ has us figured out. And he has a a word for us today about humility. The reality is that humility is a foreign concept to this world and to our flesh. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It is a foreign concept. In just about every culture, we find ways to make ourselves look more successful, 
to be more in control, to feel more self-satisfied, to find pleasure for ourselves. Even in the church, we, we hide what is truly going on in our hearts in order to save face and, and, and make it so that people can't see the blemishes that are under the surface. We also look for ways to appear even be more humble rather than actually being more humble. We could possibly do this by serving tirelessly at the church and we look very humble in the way that we serve, but inside we're frustrated about how much we have to serve and how we're feeling like we're doing it alone. We can say that we forgive others in a spirit of humility while still in reality harboring bitterness in our hearts. We can even talk down about ourselves, be a little bit self-deprecating so that we appear more humble, but inside we're just seeking affirmation from others and, and we're really not sure if, if we really feel that way about ourselves. But true humility is countercultural in every culture because at the root of it, culture is sin. We all bring our sin to the table and it combines and that's what creates culture. Not all of culture is sin, but a lot of it is. And at the root of our sin is pride. Pride that we can be like God. Pride that we know better than God. But Jesus transforms us all in that way of thinking. To, to come to Jesus, we have to humble ourselves. We have to actually admit that we are nothing and he is everything. We, we have to admit that we are incapable of achieving success, true success in our own power, that we aren't in control, that we are dependent upon him. To come to Jesus and to grow in Jesus, we have to stop trying to hide our sin and, and instead confess that we are sinners in need of grace, that we are weak and in need of grace. And in the light of Christ's grace, we can then be lifted from our lowly state and given purpose and mission in the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that a church that does not bow themselves low in humility cannot rise to the calling that God has for her. A church that does not bow themselves low in humility does not rise to the calling that God has for her. We're going to see that in Philippians 2 today. Uh, a culture of humility is critical to living on mission because we represent a humble king. Jesus himself showed us that the, the way to honor that comes from God is actually to go down lower into humility. The, the law of gravity, you might be familiar with that. It could be basically stated what goes up, must come down, right? Well, the law of humility suggests that what goes up must first come down. Humility comes before honor, and honor must come from God. And so here's our big idea for today that I long for for your church, that I long for for our church. Pursue a culture of humility as a church to reflect our humble king to the world. Pursue a culture of humility as a church to reflect our humble king to the world. 
A culture of humility is what's needed for us to rise to the calling that God has for us. And so your Bibles are open to Philippians chapter 2. I just want to remind you briefly of the context of this letter that you've been studying about from other pastors. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing something of a, a missionary prayer letter. That's what the book of Philippians is. He's writing it to one of his partner churches in the city of Philippi. And so far he has greeted them. He's thanked God for their partnership. He's prayed for them. He's even reflected on his own current situation, which we could easily describe as a very humbling, even possibly humiliating to some circumstance. Living at his own expense, chained to a Roman guard under house arrest because of his gospel ministry. But he understood that this humbling experience was actually the, the platform for more gospel ministry. He said, these chains, this suffering, this humiliating experience really only serves to advance the gospel. That was his perspective on suffering, that all of it could be used for the glory of God. And so we're going to find out today that it, this was meant to be an example. His perspective in this was meant to be an example for all other believers as well. And then in verse 27 uh, of chapter 1, Paul gets to his primary concern for the Philippian church in this letter. Uh, he says, only, only, this is his main concern, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I would argue, as many others have, that Philippians 1.27 is the purpose statement for this whole letter. He, he wants them, above all things, to align their lives with the gospel. He wants their lives to reflect the good news of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, so that they might stand united, advancing the gospel side by side. Not striving against each other like it would be easy to do in their flesh, but rising together to the calling that God has placed upon them to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ to the watching world. And so if they're going to stand firm in one spirit, if they're going to be of one mind, they're going to need to put on humility. Humility. Read with me in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're seeking to pursue a culture of humility as a church to reflect our humble king to the world. And today from these verses, we want to look at two heart attitudes, just two heart attitudes that we must pursue if we are going to embody that culture of humility together. Two heart attitudes that reflect our humble king. And the first one is this, humble selflessness. Humble selflessness. Look at verses 1 through 4 to get this point. Uh, Paul is beginning to address this primary concern for the Philippian church. Uh, later we're going to see that there is some disagreement between two ladies in the church named Yodia and Syntyche. Uh, we know that there is already a potential for false teachers to come in and to maybe cast doubt on Paul's gospel and upon Paul's teaching because he's in prison. And what kind of apostle ends up in prison it's not necessarily that they have done it here in Philippi. They could have, but, but it has happened in many other churches and it could easily come to this church. So there are threats to their gospel calling from outside of the church. There's persecution, all these sorts of things. There's threats to their gospel, to, to their gospel calling within the church. But the greatest threat to their side-by-side -side gospel calling existed within their own hearts. And it was their pride. It was their pride. And so Paul begins pulling on their heartstrings a little bit. He, he makes four statements to get them thinking about the benefits of the gospel. And so I'm going to put these statements into question form for you today so that you can just think about them, ponder on them a little bit. Think about this for your own life. Have you been encouraged through your relationship with Christ? Have you ever been comforted by his love? Maybe you've experienced that comfort through the channel of another believer. Do you enjoy any true relationship with Christ and with other believers in the spirit? Have you ever experienced any affection from Christ? Have you ever experienced any sympathy from his people? And for any true believer, the answer to those questions has to be a resounding yes. Yes. Jesus has moved toward us in humble, selfless love. He has filled us and empowered us with his spirit. He has made us a family out of those who were his enemies. He has looked upon us with mercy and compassion. And so based upon that, Paul could easily call for their humility, but he adds just one more reason, just to tug on their heartstrings a little bit more. He says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. In other words, do you want me to be happy? Sitting here in this dusty, rented space under house arrest, chained to this room in prison, do you, do you want me to have some joy? Like, talk about laying it on thick, Paul. Like, this is kind of like your grandma saying, do you just want your grandma to be happy? You should really come visit me more. You should, you should give me a phone call. Don't you want your grandma to be happy? Paul is saying, if you want me to have joy, just do this one thing. 
relate to one another in humble selflessness. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now that doesn't mean I make you think like me or you make me think like you. That means that we have the mind of Christ. We get on the same page as Christ. Remember, this is the same type of wording that we read in chapter 1, verse 27, the purpose statement when he said, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. This is the only thing that Paul wants to see. This is what would delight his heart. And that sounds like a great ideal. But if you've ever lived in the church for any period of time with other believers and you realize that we are together just bringing our sin together and, and, and we, are, we are sinners saved by grace, but yet still dealing with remaining sin, you might ask, is this at all realistic? Like, do you know how hard it can be to get everyone on the same page in a church, especially when you're not seeing each other face to face all the time during a pandemic? And so how do we do this? How do we get to this kind of unity? And, and Paul tells us how. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, selfish ambition Conceits, looking to our own interests, those are the default positions of the human heart. Let, let me illustrate this for you. We, we don't have to teach our kids to put themselves first. Or, or kids, if you're watching, perhaps you've seen this play out in your own life or, or maybe in your, your brother or sister's life. So little Johnny receives a new toy for his birthday and, and his brothers or his friends want to play with that toy before he even has a chance. And each of them says this little phrase that we all know very early on. Me first, me first. What have they done? They, they have vocalized the selfish ambition that exists in every human heart. Or how about this one? Mom or dad says, uh, it's time for bed, kids. And our children don't even like going to bed. But all of a sudden, they're, they're racing up the stairs trying to get there first and they're saying, I won. And the other one's saying, no, you didn't. And then the third one's saying like, mom, we, you didn't let me go first. At least this is what happens at my house. I got, I got three young boys, right? And what are they saying? They're saying, I, in this moment, think that my victory to the pinnacle of the staircase means that I am fundamentally better than my siblings. That is empty conceit. Or how about this? You say, uh, Susie, you need to clean up your room. We have guests coming tonight. And the first three words out of her mouth are, but I want. I, I want to go play with my toys. I want to go play this video game. Well, what is she saying? She's saying, my desires are more important than the needs of this household. And selfish ambition, conceit, looking for our own interests. Those are the default positions of the human heart. And this, this carries over into adulthood just in, in more sophisticated expressions. Here are some ways that it could play out in the church. Some people desire 
a degree of control in the church and, and they have selfish ambition or conceit. And so they want things to go their way and they, they judge anyone with a position of authority, assuming that they just must be a, a proud dictator who is trying to get their own way. Sometimes they'll push and posture their way into leadership positions. Others will try to appear humble by not aspiring to a leadership position at all, but yet they'll still make the critiques of everything that is going on. Sometimes people look to their own interests by pursuing convenience. And so they, they only gather with God's people when it fits their schedule or when it's easily accessible. They, they only serve in ministry when they're feeling up to it, when, when, when they're in a not-so-busy season. Sometimes people look to their own interests by insisting on their own preferences, whether it's, it's a musical style or the way that the live stream looks or, or maybe the, the programs that are being offered from the church for, that fit our family. And our default position is to think about our own ambition, our own status, our own interests. We don't need any help doing that. That's natural. But, but here's what's supernatural. To count others more significant than yourself. To look to the interests of others. Teenagers. Young adults. There are ways that you could do this in relationship to your church. Uh, what would it look like for you to, to use your time to care for the needs of your family or church? Kids, when your siblings are driving you crazy, what does it mean to put their interests above your own? Husbands, fathers, when you come home from a hard day and you're just like, I am so tired and I need some downtime, I need some me time. What does it look like to count your wife and kids as more significant than yourself? Wives, moms, when you've had it up to here with your husbands or, or your husband or kids not cleaning up after themselves, what does it look like to, to look at the interests of others? This is developed in the family, in the household, and then it's carried over into the family of families, the church. So leaders, uh, elders, deacons, small group leaders, our place in the church is not a status symbol. It is a call to selflessness. We, we aren't leading people to us. We are leading people to Christ. We aren't leading people to fulfill our dreams. We're leading them to pursue Christ's priorities. And there is a huge difference in that. And it's going to cost us more to lead in the church than it would ever cost us to give that responsibility to someone else. Members, if you're not in a position of leadership, what does it look like to sacrifice your interests and your preferences and, and, for the, and your convenience for the sake of the whole church? When your small group is meeting and you have somewhere else that you could be or something else that you could be doing, what does it look like to say, you know what, this is important. I'm here. When you're asked to serve in ministry, that isn't your first choice, but, but it is what your church needs right now. Will you joyfully and willfully do it? Do you, do you consider what that ministry needs, even if it might make you uncomfortable at some times? When the worship team starts leading a song on the live stream that isn't your favorite, but it's still true, do you 
sing it out fully because Jesus is worthy and because you are actually uniting your hearts with others in your church? Or do you take that time to, to go get a drink in the kitchen or turn the volume down? When the elders make a decision for the direction of the church that is not your preference, but it's still within the biblical parameters of the church, what does it look like to say, I'm going to gladly follow, I'm going to submit myself to someone else willfully, and I'm going to come together with the rest of the members of the church in unity? By the way, can I just say that leading a church in this type of unity is extremely hard and it's only compounded during a pandemic? And so you're, I want you to know that your elders love you and they want what is best for you. I'm in, I'm in contact with your elders. I hear them processing and they are longing for you as a church. They, they are working for you as a church. And so unite together under their leadership, even when they do things that you don't prefer. And they didn't tell me to say that, by the way. I just know how churches go. Also, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, at least in the United States. I don't know if that's a thing otherwhere, other places, but functionally, your elders are the pastors of your church. And so can I just say, take some time to appreciate them, particularly this month. Write them a card. Order them takeout, whatever it looks like. Love on them. For the church to stand side by side for the gospel, every person, elders and members alike, need to be thinking with humble selflessness. Not, I'll, I'll do my part when they do theirs. Not, they didn't show me love, and so I'm not going to show them love. No, no, no. Remember where Paul started the exhortation here. With the idea that Christ has given you all the encouragement and comfort and love and fellowship and affection and sympathy and joy that you will ever need. And because of what he has done for you, you can pour yourself out into others. You have a never-ending supply in Christ. And so be willing to pour yourself out just like he did. Humble selflessness is the overflow of our experience with Jesus. It is his gospel that sets us free to have the mindset of humility. And so that's actually where Paul goes next. Look at verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, And then he goes on to explain all that Christ has done. And so two heart attitudes that reflect our humble king, humble selflessness. Secondly, humble service. We have to have a heart attitude of humble service. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. The, the word that's translated mind has this sense of mindset. It, it's a common understanding, a common way of thinking. And like I said before, it's not dictated by any one person in the church. Instead, it's given to us by Christ himself. It, it flows from him and it is his mindset. And it is ours in Christ Jesus. In union to Christ, through faith in Christ, we get to have the mind of Christ. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we come to a humble king who is both the example of our humble service, he is the empowerment for our humble service, he gives us his mind, and then he is the worthy recipient of our humble service. And so Paul breaks out into what most people believe is part of a hymn that the early church sang about Jesus. And in this hymn, we see four essential components to humble service. What we... In order to embrace humble service, we must take on, first of all, the identity of a servant. The identity of a servant. Paul says, though Jesus was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word form here is, is not merely like a body, like a, like a physical structure, but it's, it's his nature. It's his nature. And the Son of God was in the form of God. He was fully God in nature. He has all of the attributes of God. He has existed in perfect oneness with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past all the way into eternity future. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient. And though he always has that form, he did not count that form a thing to be grasped. He did not count that position a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean that he could not attain it. It means that he didn't selfishly hold on to it. He didn't hold it with a closed fist. It wasn't a thing that he held on to for personal advantage. Instead, he willfully emptied himself. Now, this is important because the early church spent a lot of time making sure that everyone understood what this meant. And I just want to make sure that you understand what this meant. For the Son of God to empty himself, it does not mean that he stopped being God. It does not mean that he lost or gave up his divine attributes in order to become human. And it does not mean that he was sometimes human and sometimes God or maybe half human and half God. Those are all heresies. Instead, this means that he set aside the privileges of his divine status. He did not subtract from his divinity. Instead, he added full humanity to his already full divinity. He decided to impose limitations upon himself so as to fully embrace the human nature and experience, and therefore he took on the complete human nature, uh, not a sin nature, by the way, but a complete human nature, such as Adam had in the Garden of Eden. He took that on in addition to his divine nature. Hope that's clear for you. And he did all of this to serve, first of all, God. He was serving the Father. And he did that by serving you, he assumed the identity of a servant. That, that word servant that Paul uses is the same word that he used to describe himself in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's one of the most common words that we see used in the New Testament to describe the identity of believers. Everyone who is united to Christ must embrace this identity. I'm a servant. I'm a servant of the king. Because Jesus became servant, we take on the identity of servants. We, we need to view ourselves through that lens. So what did this look like for Jesus to be a servant, to have the identity of, of a servant? Well, it means that he took on the activity of a servant. In this case, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the, the work that Jesus saved you by. And that is the way that he was serving God the Father. He was completing the Father's will. He was obeying God the Father. And his obedience became the gospel that saves you. 
Jesus went to the lowest place for you. He took your death upon himself in the most humiliating, humble expression of death imaginable. He made your consequences for your sin his consequences, even though he had no sin of his own. He made your suffering his suffering. And that's, that's the heart of our faith, isn't it? If you've never understood that about Jesus, that, that Jesus came and he served you by dying for you, and that your sin deserved that, then you need to confess your sin. You need to humble yourself before God and say, I am a sinner in need of saving grace. I cannot save myself, Lord. I am dead in my sin. I deserve death. And you need to turn and believe Jesus died in your place and he rose again and he is the only Savior and Lord. You need him. You are dependent upon him. You are dead without him. That is the heart of our faith and that is what servanthood looks like. That's the activity of a servant. Servants go to the lowest place. What goes up must first come down. And if it required the servanthood of Jesus to secure our salvation, then we can expect that our life as saved people will take the same form of a servant. The mindset of Jesus never says, you know what, this gospel costs too much. Or this service is too hard. Or do they really expect me to do that? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The, the life of following Jesus, who was a servant, looks like service by which we take up our own cross, by which we die to ourselves daily. The path of Jesus is the path of the cross. It's the activity of obedient servanthood, of laying down our lives for Jesus and his church. Is that how you relate to the church of Jesus Christ there in Kuala Lumpur? And that means that we need to follow Jesus in this third way. The trust of a servant. The trust of a servant. Now this may not seem immediately apparent, but let me show it to you. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted that's verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, Jesus refused, even though he was God, refused to exalt himself. He waited on the Lord to exalt him. He let God protect him and take care of his needs. And servants entrust themselves to their masters for their very way of life. Even though Jesus had the very nature of God, he entrusted himself to the Father for the time that he was to be glorified. And how much does that stand out in a world that is committed to exalting their own ideas? In a world that is committed to showing everyone how great they are and, and making sure that they always look good in front of others. How much does that stand out in, in a world who will tear down everyone who disagrees with them so that they look better, so that they can get to the top? And followers of Jesus entrust themselves to God and wait for God to lift them up instead. Let me illustrate this for you. When you're in the presence of a king, what do you do? Well, in, in many cultures, you bow 
and you don't stop bowing until he gives the signal, whatever that might be. And so it is with God. God loves to crown the humble with honor. He loves to lift the lowly from the ashes and seat them with princes. But he does it in his time and we must entrust ourselves to the Lord. It, humility is the act of entrusting ourselves to the salvation of God. We don't vindicate ourselves. We have the mind of Christ which allows the Lord to have the final victory because that's when he gets all the glory, right? He gets all the glory. The life of service to the king who suffered follows the contours of his life on earth. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we can expect that for the remainder of our lives on this earth, They will be marked by suffering. But God will have the proof of his final victory when he raises us again with Christ and when he brings us into his eternal kingdom. And we surrender our lives to that good plan. What did Paul say earlier in Philippians? To live is Christ and to die is gain. And even in the midst of suffering and opposition, God delivers his joy. He delivers his people. He cares for us in the midst of that. And in the end, everyone is going to see that a life lived in service to Jesus is the right choice because Jesus dictates the position of a servant. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can imitate Jesus' example in everything so far, but it, it stops here. We will never be at the place where God bestows on us the name that is above every name. That that belongs to Jesus alone. He alone holds the highest position in heaven and on earth. And his position as the king dictates our position. We are never Lord. We are always and happily servants. We get to be servants of that king. We, We get to be in his courts, in his presence forever. In the Old Testament, the name that is described as above every name is the name of Yahweh. It's the personal covenant name of God that describes the fact that he is the only true God. In our Bibles, it's translated in the Old Testament as L-O-R-D, Lord, with all capital letters. And Paul is saying that Jesus will be recognized as Yahweh, the one and only God, and every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess in heaven where the angels and the saints are, the, 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 the idea of the presence of God. Every, knee will, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow on earth. This is referring to uh, when Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth, right? And then, and then when the heavens, the new heavens and the earth, new earth come into being, uh, that is the place where, where Jesus will be uh, joyfully adored. But there will also be the need for every tongue to confess under the earth. 
from hell, from the fiery abyss, and, and even Satan and his demons, and every person who did not confess Jesus as Savior and Lord in this life will be forced to confess him in the life to come, and they will do so through weeping and gnashing of teeth, the Bible says. But Jesus commands that absolute authority. It belongs to him. We don't give it to him. It belongs to him. God gave it to him. And his authority determines our position. We are his servants. His authority humbles us. And so the question is, will you humble yourself before him? Will you give your life in service to this king, this king who served you in death and who is supremely worthy of your service in life? Will you find your identity in him and center your activity around him and entrust your life to him? Listen, that is the purpose for which he has saved you. That is the calling to which he wants you to rise. And he, you rise to that calling when you embrace the lowest place. He has saved you so that you can reflect his humble selflessness and his humble service to the rest of his body, the church, which is to serve the Lord himself. And how will you reflect him today? How will you reflect that selflessness and service this week in your family, in the church, in your workplace? Let's pray that we do. Father God, it is your glory that humbles us. Your holiness, your high and holy place that humbles us. And it is amazing to us that we can serve a holy God. You have laid us low. You have shown us that, that you alone deserve all honor and glory and power. And so we ask that, that you would reveal to us our humble state. It's a big, a big and dangerous request, Lord. But it is the only way that we can truly see and experience what you have for us in the church. And so I pray, I pray for my brothers and sisters at Harvest KL that they would not be ashamed of humility, but embrace humility. I pray that, that they would look different to the watching world and that many people would want to know Jesus because of what he has done in their lives. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are loved, Harvest.